Does it really matter if the events talked about in the Old Testament took place in the times and ways that are described in the Bible? Isn't the spiritual message of these stories what's really the most important? Hi, I'm Yvonne Print, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to talk about how it matters a lot that it is very important that the Old Testament describes true stories that took place in recognizable places that we are able to date in true history. When we do that, it helps us understand not only the view of our great God as He sees the beginning to the end, but it shows us that He can be trusted with the details of our story, both in the past and in the eternity of our future with Him. We'll talk about all of this in our lesson entitled, Last Messages of Judgment and Hope, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, and Nahum. Now, as you probably already realized from the introduction, this is going to be a little bit of a long, complicated lesson, and it it was really it's really been hard for me on especially this last part of the Old Testament, figuring out how to organize the different lessons and podcasts that we have. I would like to take a much greater period of time to go into every book in detail, and who knows what will happen as the years go by. But for now, to get through the entire Bible in a year, I need to condense some books into one lesson and then maybe spend a little bit more time on other books as we go through other lessons. So this is one of the lessons that is going to be a bit, as I said, long and complicated. But without any further ado, let's jump right in. Where we are right now is that God has been very, very patient with Israel and Judah. It's been over 700 years since they came out of Egypt, and God has constantly reminded them of his blessings and how he will love and provide and cause them to prosper if they obey. But he has also sent many, many prophets to warn them of what will happen if they're disobedient. He's also reminded them throughout all of the books that we've studied the importance of the need for them to reflect justice, mercy, humility, and love in their personal lives. Now today we're going to look at some of God's final messages. We'll be covering a lot, but we're also going to look at how a lot of the things that happened during this time are verified in history. Now speaking of time, we need to look at the importance of the prophetic view of time. And this can get a little bit confusing because remember the prophets speak for God and our God, and this is something that's really hard well, I, I started to say hard to comprehend. I don't think we can comprehend it at all. But reality is that our God sees everything at one time. We've used this illustration in the past of it's as if you were in the announcer's box at a huge parade and you were way up above the parade and you could literally see from the beginning to the end of the parade. Now, someone down on the street level would only see what's right in front of them. We're down on the street level. God is up above, so to speak. And again, this terribly poor analogy, but I hope it helps where he can see everything at one time. Now, here's where it translates into what's going on in our lesson today. God sees everything. He has his spokespeople, the prophets, and he gives them a certain message. Now, what 
gets a little bit confusing when it comes from the prophets is we don't always understand if God is talking about something that's going to happen in a few years or in the distant future. And in prophecy, and many of the prophecies in these books, especially when we get to the book of Isaiah, we will see Isaiah literally moving throughout eternity in the things that he talks about in his book. We don't know always whether he's talking about something that's going to happen in the very near future or if he's jumping ahead to the time of the Messiah or if he is jumping ahead to God's final restoration of all things and a new heaven and a new earth. So just keep in mind as you're reading these things you might want to consult some additional commentaries but if you find yourself being confused, don't worry about it. That just that just kind of happens, and I will try very hard to help you out on your study. Now, even though there is this big, broad expanse of time and eternity talked about, at the same time, the stories that are in these books are often told from their current viewpoint of what's happening right then and there in history. And this is very important because, as you'll see, some of the power of the prophetic messages, particularly when we get into the book of Isaiah and some of the other things where God says very specifically, this is going to happen, this certain king is going to do it, this is when it will happen. If these were spoken at the time that the book says they are, but they didn't happen until hundreds of years later, and we can verify that, this is a very strong reason for us to be able to trust a God of history. And for literally many centuries in biblical studies, they used some of the passages in the books that we're going to be looking at as a real um, sort of proof or whatever you want to call it to show that prophecy is true and real. Unfortunately, liberal scholarship in the 1800s decided that they knew better than all of the centuries of biblical scholarship prior to that time and they attempted to date much of the material that's in the books that we'll be looking at far later than what had always been accepted when the books were written. Now, the reason this is so important is if, for example, Isaiah says that a certain thing's going to happen, and if he said it, as biblical scholars believe, a very long time, hundreds of years in some cases, over 150 years in some specific prophecies, if this, if he said that before these things happened, then it shows when it happens that he is a true prophet of God. However, if he didn't write them till after it happened, well, no big deal. In fact, it's worse than no big deal. It shows that he's a liar because he didn't really, he's trying to fool you and make you think that it was written earlier. So there was a lot of controversy and there's been a lot of controversy, but most of it has been completely dismissed by reputable scholars today. First of all, the scholars that attempted to prove these things, their presuppositions, the things that they believed before they came to any of the evidence are what are called anti-supernatural. If you have the idea that God is not, well, that God really is the all-powerful, all-seeing, eternal God doesn't exist at all, then you don't believe in true 
prophecy, then you don't believe in miracles. And so you have to come up with another reason while these things were written. And they just said, oh, they're written later. That that answers that. And one of the books that they particularly pick on is the book of Isaiah. And they came up with the idea of what they call the deuterio Isaiah or a second Isaiah. And their idea was that supposedly Isaiah only wrote the first part that took place before the Babylonian captivity. But then all of these other passages that talk about the Babylonian captivity and what's going to happen during it and even the, the release from that, that those had to have been written later. Well, it sounds really good if you don't believe in a supernatural God, but as simple scholarship, the Dead Sea Scrolls, many of these things have shown that... It, their ideas were completely false. The Dead Sea Scrolls are one of the best examples of this, is we have the complete book of Isaiah, and this was this is dated from very, very early, and it's one complete book. It isn't broken into pieces. And there, there are just a lot of other things that I don't have time to go into now, but it's very important that we understand when things happen, and we'll see that not only in documentary evidence, but I'm going to also mention a number of things that are archaeology has found out for us. So one other thing, oh, I just remembered one other thing. Um, you can study all sorts of things, and I'll actually, I need to put this on the website. There's an excellent book. It's um, by Gleason Archer. It's a survey of Old Testament and introduction. Now, this is actually a, a seminary-type book. It's kind of expensive, but I've used it a lot in preparation for my studies, and he goes through and refutes in very scholarly and minute detail why the critics are wrong and why we can trust the traditional dating of many of the things in the old in the Old Testament, many of the books in the Old Testament, and his section on Isaiah is particularly detailed and very very good. Now let me read you one of the passages that the critics have had a lot of trouble with, and you'll understand why in just a minute. This passage, according to conservative biblical scholarship we believe was written about 150 years before Cyrus became king of Persia. Now, not only was this before he became king, but Babylon, which is actually the nation that the Medes and the Persians conquered, the one that came after Assyria, it wasn't even a power yet. And the Medes and the Persians weren't really much of anything at all. But Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, uh, says this, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Now, keep in mind, he's prophesying the rebuilding of Jerusalem before it was even destroyed. He has, in other prophecies, prophesied that it's going to be destroyed, it's going to be taken over, but here he is moving ahead of the destruction and saying that it will be rebuilt. And then he says, this is what is just phenomenal. He says, who says of Cyrus... 
He is my shepherd and will accomplish all I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now, what is so extraordinary about this is he prophesied it 150 years prior. The nations that were intervening and going to be in power weren't even powers at that time. And he describes, well, he doesn't just describe what's going to happen. He names him by name, specifically by name. And he says that he will ask, he will give the order that the temple's to be rebuilt. And we have, it's just fascinating, we have in the British Museum something that is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And in that, um, it's, it's just this kind of odd-shaped clay thing, and in that it has his decree that actually decreed that these things should happen, that they should go back to their lands and rebuild the temple. Now you have to understand in history, he did that for a number of nations, and that doesn't negate anything that the Bible says, but Jerusalem, the Jews were one of them, and it is really an extraordinary prophecy because it took place so far in, you know, so far um prior to this actually happening. And also, too, this wasn't something that you could sort of guess would happen. Kings did not do that. They did not help captive people return to their land and give them money to rebuild their temples. But for some reason, Cyrus felt like he needed to do that. And so he did that. So you see, if we believe that these books are written when the Bible tells us they're written, and the reason, the way the Bible does that is the book of Isaiah and a lot of the other books start out saying, you know, Isaiah, son of Amos, and he preached during the times of it starts with Uzziah, and then it goes through all these different kings. Almost all of the books, and there's a couple that we'll talk about next week that don't have what's called a time stamp. We don't know exactly when it was written, but most of the prophets were very clear. I wrote this during when so-and-so was king, and we have very good records of when the different uh, kings of Judah and Israel. I wrote this in Babylon. I wrote this in Jerusalem. I wrote this wherever. So they make claims for physical, spiritual, um, not spiritual, really physical uh, location, time, and date. And when we can trust them, then the prophecy becomes even more astounding. Now, that's not the only thing. His prophecy of uh, what's going to happen with Cyrus. But in the book of Isaiah, it begins with warnings to all these different nations. And again, it starts when Uzziah is king, and it goes through the time of Manasseh. Isaiah actually preached over 60 years. He is one of the longest preaching prophets. Hosea preached a long time. A few Jeremiah does also, but Isaiah is one of the longest preaching ones. His really key time of influence, you might say, was when Hezekiah becomes king. There had been um, some, after Uzziah, not some such great kings, but then Hezekiah comes along, he cleans out the temple, he destroys idols, he really brings about a huge revival in the land. Isaiah's preaching at this time, and also, as we talked about in our previous lesson, the prophet Micah is also preaching. Now, um, Assyria had destroyed Israel as a kingdom. And after he did that, a few years later, Sennacherib 
of Assyria comes down and he's going to conquer Judah. And he goes through the land and he conquers all these cities, including a city called Lachish, which is not far from Jerusalem. He did this during Hezekiah's reign. He turns his eyes on Jerusalem and is ready to take that city. And we have some very exciting interactions in Isaiah 36 and 37 that talk about Sennacherib coming up to the city gates and his the taunts, how he taunts them. And Isaiah the prophet says, um, you know, this isn't going to happen. You're not going to be able to take the city. And the army approaches and says, did the God of any nation ever deliver this land from the king of Assyria? And nope, the gods of all these other nations didn't, but God Almighty will. Hezekiah humbles himself. He asks for Isaiah's help, and God answers. And in the book of Isaiah, we see that God went out, destroyed a huge amount of his army, and then Sennacherib goes back to uh, fight other battles and is soon thereafter killed by his sons. Now, what's interesting about it is Sennacherib also documents what happened. Now, as I've, I've talked about in some of my other lessons, the Assyrians were really to documenting things. They had this little bitty cuneiform script and they, they wrote in great detail. You look at these these different pillars and stele they call them that they, they wrote on and just little tiny writing all over the place and just telling them I did this, I did this, I did this. They love to talk about themselves. What is so fascinating is so much of what they talk about and not only with the little cuneiform descriptions but they did these huge carvings on walls and uh, just phenomenal things. Well we have two really interesting verifications of these things in the archaeological record. First, when they conquered Lachish, and it shows them, uh, their battering rams up against the walls, and Sennacherib describes how he slaughtered the people there, and it's just these really sort of gory things. But then he gets to Jerusalem, and it all he can say is, I shut, I shut the king up in there. I just, I just shut him up like a caged bird. And it's kind of like, I'm not going to talk about what else happened. And then he talks about, I left to go fight something else. And then we know from history thereafter, um, he was killed. So very, very interesting, clear archaeological verification of what the Bible tells us and when it said it happened, in the way it said it happened, even though, of course, they don't give any credit to God. Now, going on in Isaiah, which is our our major book in this section, a lot of commentators have said, well, the book's kind of like the Old Testament and New Testament. It goes 39 chapters are like the Old Testament, and then the last 27 are like the New Testament. That's silly. The reason that's silly is because, first of all, when the book was written, it wasn't written in chapters. <laughs> that's been just a few hundred years' development in the history of the Bible. So um, Isaiah did not write it, breaking it up into nice, tidy chapters. And anyway, that just didn't happen that way. And there's not really that big of a shift. Now, there is a shift in the life of Hezekiah in this sort of middle section. Uh, he becomes very ill. He was granted longer life when he prayed, and God said, I will extend your life 15 years. But sadly, uh, Hezekiah, who was a godly, godly man and brought about a lot of good things, he ends his life in a very proud, arrogant way. The envoys from Babylon come to uh, commiserate with him after he got well and all of that, and it says that he showed them all of his treasuries and sort of this, you know, look how great I am. Isaiah comes and challenges him on that, and he said, all this will be carried away. 
you know, Judah will be destroyed if they don't repent of their sins. And the last we hear of Hezekiah, he just says, well, it won't happen in my lifetime. I'm glad about that. What a kind of miserable way to die. But um, but anyway, he, he did a number of good things. I think just a little challenge to us. We can never, ever, ever in our life think that we've got it made. We've done everything that, you know, all of a sudden, instead of trusting God, it's what I did, what I did, what I did. No, no, no. That's never pleasing to the Lord. And so we want to always, um, as as our, our challenging lesson last week said, walk humbly with our God and never think that, oh, I'm getting out of this one before real disaster happens. No, we want to prepare the children that come after us and the people that are going to be, we're leaving behind when we go to be with the Lord for them to be strong. I do think our world will get tougher and tougher. People, uh, just people get, you know, will get mean if resources get more scarce or uh, just all kinds of hardships that can happen either globally or even in a neighborhood or whatever. We need to help the people that come after us know that no matter what happens, their strength is in the Lord. And that's who we need to trust in. But um, Isaiah goes on and so many things talked about in the book. I, I don't have time to go through all of them. I wanted to do a whole lesson just on Isaiah, but we just don't have time. But let me just read you some selected passages that show how the book just, his his view of all of eternity. He talks about humanity's fall. He talks about, he says, your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me. And he, he talks in various places of the origin of sin in human life. He also talks about Satan's fall, this very famous passage where he says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High God. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Not only does he talk about Satan, but he talks about the coming Messiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And he also talks about the suffering of our Savior. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he talks about how people responded to these phenomenal messages with false worship, where he says, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on human rules they've been taught. But he also talks about those who trust in him, and he says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord the Lord himself is the rock eternal. 
And then two phenomenal passages about how all things will be made new. All things will be renewed. Where he says in Isaiah 51, Those who the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy, will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And in Isaiah 65, See, I created new heavens and a new earth. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So, Take time when you read Isaiah. It is a phenomenal book. And when you are reading it, put yourself in the place of this is how God sees human history. He sees the beginning from the end. He sees it all. And he's in control of it. And he loves us. Now, let me get back to the historical parts. After Isaiah, sadly, Manasseh is a horrible, horrible, evil, evil king. He reigns, unfortunately, for I believe it's something like 55 years. It's just really a long time. Uh, Amnon uh, was a very bad, evil king who followed him, but his reign was pretty short. Then we have a great revival under Josiah, who became king when he was eight years old, and he just did wonderful, godly things all of his life. During his reign, Jeremiah preached, Zephaniah preached, Huldah, a female prophet, preached, and there was really a time of sporadic revival with some people, but overall, it the people really did not repent, and Jeremiah takes us all the way to the captivity of Judah and afterwards. Now, that's kind of just a sort of an overview of what happened there. We'll talk a little bit more about Jeremiah in a few minutes, but there are also two interesting books I want to mention that took place possibly the same time. Uh, We're not really sure because it's very difficult. One of them we we do know fairly certain, uh, Nahum, that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, We know pretty, we're pretty sure when this was written, but the other one's Obadiah. It's very hard to know exactly when this book took place, but um, I'm putting it in here because kind of throwing in general books on judgment. This is a book that talks about the judgment of Edom and Edom, if you remember, Edom were uh, the people of Edom, they were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And there was always hatred, there was always enmity between them. And apparently, when Israel um, was. Uh, had been taken captive, we don't know actually before or after them, when some of the captives from Judah were taken prisoners. And again, we don't know exactly the details on this, but it says in the book that you stood aloof while strangers carried off their wealth. Foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. And the book goes on to prophesy that they will be destroyed. It says there will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. And what actually happened is the Edomites, they had this very large, very powerful land south of Judah, and it was destroyed. Then after they moved out, a group called the Nabataeans, who were somewhat related to them, moved in. Um, It was a nation throughout the time of Rome. And then in 386, there was a huge earthquake that destroyed a lot of it. Now, some of you, um, whether you 
realize it or not, you're familiar with Edom. This is the area where they had those uh, the wonderful rose and red sandstone colored temples and the things built into the rocks. In the Raiders of the Last Ark, that temple that was carved into the stone, that's actually one of the ruins of what used to be Edom. So it's a tourist trap now, but uh, certainly not the famous land that they envisioned that they would be. The other one that comes under judgment in this section is Nahum. And we this was prophesied uh, to Nineveh. They had a great revival under Jonah, but obviously it did not last. And they returned to even more tremendous and horrible cruelty on the nations that they conquered after that. And so God finally says, you know, the Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Though they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And he goes on to say that um, with Nineveh, they will stumble on their way. The river gates are thrown open. The palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. Where now? is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young. And by the way, if you look at all of these carvings that were previously done uh, that the Ninevites did com- to commemorate themselves, they just loved lions. They showed their kings conquering them and fighting them. And they, they use lion imagery a lot to illustrate how powerful they are. And God just says, it is, you know, it's nothing compared to me. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? And they were destroyed. People didn't even know that the city existed. They doubted what the Bible said about it because it was covered up so completely. It wasn't until the mid to late 1800s that they rediscovered Nineveh and they discovered all these things that now verify what's in the Bible. But when God said it's time to destroy it completely, it was destroyed. Following that, of course, we have the book of Jeremiah. This is one of the longest books in the Bible. He preached through a number of kings and various deportations. Judah did not fall all at once. Depending upon how different scholars date them, there were between four to six deportations. Daniel was carried away during one of them. In a few weeks, we'll be talking about Ezekiel and Daniel. Um, Another one, Ezekiel was carried away during that one. It took a number of times where Babylon deported people, and then finally they just said, it's over. But during all of this time, Jeremiah preached to them. He preached that the people submit to judgment, that if they did that, if they surrendered to Babylon, they would live. And of course, this was not a popular message. One commentator had called, uh, called Jeremiah the hospice nurse to a dying nation. There was no way that God's judgment was going to be turned aside, but Jeremiah was trying to tell them, this is how you can get through it. God will protect you. You will live if you just trust in his words and and you do what he tells you to do. 
they didn't. The slaughter was far worse than it needed to be. And after Jerusalem is destroyed, after Solomon's temple is destroyed, uh, Jeremiah also writes the book of Lamentations. And in it, he talks about, he says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This has been a very quick run-through of a huge amount of biblical history. We'll be going down in more depth to some other books after this. But during this whole time, the basic story is God continuously sent his prophets to warn his people, but they wouldn't listen. And it was very tough on the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah both had really difficult lives through many, many years where they preached the message God wanted them to preach and people didn't respond. If nothing else, as we conclude these books, I think it helps us realize that much of the current view of Christianity, that it just should make us happier and healthier and wealthier and life really comfortable, that is so far off. Sometimes obeying God makes life difficult. Living according to his standards can be challenging. So what what are we supposed to do in these books again and again? They were observing all these religious ceremonies, but God says, that isn't what I want. I want your heart. I want you to live for me. Uh, go back if you haven't listened to the podcast last week on Micah 6, 8, because that's such a good summary that the Lord expects us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, no matter what the circumstances. And Jeremiah is such a good example. He followed his calling no matter what. And like Jeremiah, we all have a calling. We sometimes forget that we do, but remember Jesus said to all of us when he left earth, he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And I can imagine a lot of you are thinking, well, how can I go and make disciples? And what is that all about? Well, this is, I really like the message translation because this is the way that he puts it. He says, go out and train everyone you meet near and far in this way of life. Instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you. You see, in many ways, when I read that, the Great Commission kind of circles back to the prophets. The prophets were trying to teach people that you belong to God, and because of that, it should make a difference in your daily lives, in your priorities, how you pursue justice and mercy and humility in how you interact in every part of your life. And the Great Commission is basically saying the same thing. Live the way God wants you to live. 
That is a message. That is how we show people that we're God's people. I love this little poem. It's it's kind of one of those little, I don't know, really sort of simple little poems, but I think it's a very uh, good summary of what the prophets would say, how we're supposed to live our lives today. Anyway, let me just read it to you. It says, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the things that you say. People read what you write, distorted or true. What is the gospel according to you? And I would hope for all of us that the gospel our lives teaches is one that points people to Jesus because we want them to know him as Savior and Lord, not only for really the most wonderful, peaceful, and meaningful life now, but throughout all eternity. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson there in downloadable PDF format on the website on www.bible805.com. And do subscribe to the podcast. There's a lot of, I think, really kind of neat ones coming up where we will be talking about some of the prophets in much more detail. And I think you will find them very encouraging. Now, until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wonder to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.